Hola, it's Daniela. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is a really beautiful conversation about creativity, about the artistic practice, and all of these different limiting beliefs and stereotypes that exist about what it is to be a creative person, specifically a creator within the society that we live in right now and how there are so many different stereotypes and ways of viewing creativity that are no longer serving us. I've divided this episode in two parts because we got very excited and we talked quite a bit, but I hope you enjoy them and please leave any comments and questions you might have. I would be very grateful and I'm very excited to know what you think and so would Ali love to know what you think. So let's jump into the episode. Hi, I'm opening this new episode with an incredible person, an incredible artist, and a really just amazing new friend, which I'm very excited to talk with about art. Um, I have a long history of doing art, and so does she. The incredible thing about this is that we're going to meet in an area that I feel is full of landmines for me. <laughs> so I'm very excited. And I would love for you, Ali, to introduce yourself. And to start off um, with the question, do we need to suffer for art? Thank you. Thank you, Daniela. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and I'm, I'm happy we got through our initial technical nightmares getting onto this um, podcast recording. So that's a win already. My name is Ali Mapletoft. I'm an artist. I'm a creative director. I am a mentor to artists and I am so excited to talk about the topic that you have raised for today around whether we need to suffer for our art. I've got a lot to say about this, by the way. So hopefully we can keep this into the half an hour podcast that we intended. So you, you, you came with the question, do we need to suffer for our art? And I guess, if, if I was going to answer this in the simplest possible way, mm -hmm. I guess I would say, well, we can if we want to, right? We can suffer for our art if we, if we choose to. And that might sound like a bit of a confusing thing to say for some people, but essentially I think that as artists, we have a, a choice, right? And it's so important to be aware that there is this idea out there that in order to be an authentic artist, we need to be suffering or troubled in some way. Is that something that you've come across in your kind I, of journey so far as an artist? I've seen it. I've seen it my whole life. I okay. even remember the moment that I thought or even became aware of the suffering that a lot of creative people go through. Um, I was told many times that to be creative, it meant to really deeply question what you were doing to the extent of just not knowing if what you were doing was good 
or right or appropriate. Um, mm. And these are ideas that I've heard my whole life, like since I was very little. And I started being in a creative environment when I was four years old. Mm. You know what? I feel like I want to reframe the question a little bit. because So we started with, do you need to suffer for your art? Mm -hmm. And so in the simplest possible way, I'm saying, not unless you choose to. Yes. And I'll expand on that in a minute. But what I want to, I want to almost like refine the question a little bit. And I want the question to be, do we need to suffer for our art in order to be authentic? Right. Because I think that that's actually the thing that I see plaguing so many artists that I work with. So I've coached and mentored over 3,000 artists in various different capacities. And I think that there is an attachment somewhere, almost like a handcuff that links suffering to this idea of authenticity, whatever that means. Mm. And so what I would love to kind of talk about is, are we, are we able as creative people to make art that is really true to us without centering it around suffering, without centering it around struggle. And when I say only if we want to, mm. I think what I'm really getting at is that our, our story is being written by us all the time, right? We are creating ourselves and our story. And so we can choose <laughs> whether or not we're saying, my art supports me to move through my struggles or my struggles are necessary in order for my art to be authentic. And the way that I see it is that my art does support me to move through my struggles, but my struggles are not required in order for me to be able to create great art. Does right. that make sense? Right. So you don't need to go through traumatic experiences to be a creative person, basically. Exactly. I don't need to go through trauma in order to create great art, great art can come from so many different places. It doesn't always have to be suffering and pain, but I think we're super attached to the idea of the, the, the troubled artists. So, you know, we always have that story of like Vincent van Gogh cut off his ear, like as if that made him a, a more authentic artist somehow, or, right. you know, Frida, Frida Kahlo had this terrible, accident and then she expressed so much of her pain through her art and then that makes her a more authentic artist my personal view on that is that that was a person who had so much to give and so much to say and they would have given it and they would have said it no matter what their experiences have been and the fact that their suffering did inform their art doesn't mean that their art could not have been authentic and could not have had value without the suffering it just happens to be that we see it through the lens of their suffering. And so I think for a lot of artists working now, there's almost a temptation to go mining for trauma or mining for suffering of some kind in order to justify their art as authentic. Does that resonate with you? Yes. And is, is that because 
of how is that is that purely coming out of the artist or is that because there's like a not a requirement of it but kind of if if you approach a gallery or if you approach other people to you know interact with your work are they one way or another expecting there to be some form of issue mm. i think that's a really interesting question i wouldn't want to speak for galleries in general when it yeah. comes to visual artists or, or or representatives in general because you know i, I I don't know enough about what individual galleries and places like that are thinking, but I definitely think that there is a societal pressure and maybe this is illuminated even more by social media and the kind of race to get to the top of that hierarchy, whereby if we do have a story of struggle and we do have a story of suffering, it's really easy to see how we can use that almost as a hook. So that's the, you know, the hook of the story. My work centers around my trauma in this, or my work centers around my struggle in this, or my work centers around um, the suffering that I have overcome. And I think that it's very, very compelling because we're probably all familiar with this idea of the hero's story which is, you know, there's a, there's a call to adventure of some kind, there's a rejection of that call to adventure, then the hero goes into the story, they move through immense suffering and pain, there's some kind of battle of some kind, and then once that battle is resolved, they find themselves in a place of victory. And by the way, I've massively oversimplified that for anybody who's a real hero's journey geek, I have massively oversimplified that. But that's the essence of it, right? And it's almost that that's almost a very um, masculine hero's story about overcoming adversity. That's true. And I think we're very married to that model, particularly when it comes to selling ourselves as, as authentic artists to the rest of the world. Yes, yes. Um, and the hero's journey is so present in many different forms of media. It's not just in creativity, it's also in journalism, it's also in filmmaking and in so many different things that we interact with. So basically, what actually makes authentic work, like authentic creative work? Mm. This is a really interesting question. So this morning I went for a walk on the beach with my husband and I was telling him about when I was younger, I got to a point in my life where I honestly believe that I was prioritizing winning for the sake of approval over um, integrity. So for me, authenticity in your work as an artist is integrity within yourself and, and, and knowing and feeling and creating what feels really fucking true for you. And I know that I was out of integrity and therefore out of authenticity when I was a young artist because I began to really prioritize winning in terms of doing things like 
um, applying for grants or applying for funding, and then really just giving the panel what they wanted to see. And I know I was doing that. And I could feel this disconnect and this dissonance and this almost sick feeling of lying in my body. And I didn't really recognize what that was for at least 10 years. But I know that I created work that felt untrue. And when I would receive, say, prizes and accolades and, and praise for that work, I always felt very uncomfortable with that praise. And so for me, that was, in retrospect, I can see that that's my way of, of knowing that I was out of authenticity because when somebody would, would praise me for that work, I would kind of feel sick like I was a cheater, you know, like I cheated my way to the prize. And in the, in the industry that I was in, so I trained as an animator, I got a British Film Institute grant to create a film that would be seen on Channel 4. And at every step of the way, including the application to, to, to get that grant, and then the production of the film and the distribution of the film, in one way or another, I was submitting to what I saw my... I suppose, superiors and betters telling me what I should do. So if my producer told me, well, you should make this character like this, or you should write this into the plot, or, you know, you'll have more chance of getting the money if the character is like this or like that, I would submit to it because I was prioritizing winning. I wanted popularity. I wanted to win. I wanted to be approved of. I wanted to receive the money so I could put my film on Channel 4 and say my film has been on Channel 4. And I made so many creative compromises in order to choose winning over integrity. So that's what being out of authenticity looks like as an artist. And I can definitely remember there being a part of that process where it was like, write the statement um, about you and your work. And I knew in that moment, I need to put as many little bits of suffering and struggle in here as possible in order to provide what is required of me. Oh. So, like, could you give examples? So, I grew up in the kingdom of Lesotho in southern Africa, which is a small African country surrounded by um, South Africa. It's an independent country. It's never been part of South Africa. It's like, you know, it's its own, own kingdom. Beautiful place to live, but it did become politically troubled when I was in my teens. Um, there, all sorts of stuff went on. We got invaded by South Africa. There was a lot of like civil unrest. It was, it was bad. And it felt unsafe. And there were various scenarios that went on there, like um, my parents had backpacks packed at the back door at one point when we lived there with bolt cutters, batteries, um, torches, spare clothes, dried food, in case we had to escape, right? Stuff like that happened. The truth is, I had left that stuff in my childhood. It was no longer really an active part of my story. It didn't really feature in my psyche anymore. It wasn't 
important anymore. My childhood was over <laughs> by the time I was applying for these grants and things. But I also knew that bringing these elements into my story when I was interviewed by people or whatever, that that would in some way hold some power. Right. Right. So it, it would be basically something relatively unheard of. So it would add yeah, more it, mysticism. It was indicative of, mm. of, of, of struggle and suffering in a way that mm. I thought as a, as a young artist, like 20 year old would help me to win. Okay. And what I discovered was that that was true. Oh, you right. know, that yeah. was true. It did help me to win. Now as an artist in my forties, I'm not as um, focused on winning in the same way. It's like I've grown into myself a little bit more. And I realize now that, that, my my suffering and my struggles don't define me and therefore they do not need to define the work that I create. And in fact, what I, I really feel very strongly is that the artist can still address and speak of and speak to any kind of very potent and strong emotion, including suffering, without it actually being their own in that moment, because we are empathetic beings we have compassion so in order to create work that speaks of or speaks to or addresses um suffering trauma or any of those things we don't actively have to be experiencing that same thing for ourselves in that moment that's why we're artists you know it's why an actor is an actor it's why a photographer is a photographer a painter is a pa painter because we can take something intangible and we can transmute it into the tangible, but we do not have to be experiencing that same thing for ourselves in the literal sense of the word, even if we're having an encounter with that emotion on a deep level. Um, because we are shapeshifters, it doesn't have to be ours. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. But maybe could you explain it a bit further for someone who is not a creative? Okay. Okay. I'll try. So I can see, I can see myself creating a painting or creating a film, even if the theme of that film were something like grief, I can see myself being able to create that powerfully, even if what I'm creating is outside of my direct experience, because imagination is so powerful because empathy is so powerful, because the capacity to create an entire world in my mind, including feelings, emotions, um, is so strong. And I, I believe that it is for so many artists. I believe that we can create that outside of our direct experience. And I'm also super aware that, there, that that's almost um, an out of fashion idea that we can create something out of our own experience. I think what's very in fashion right now is that as an artist, you should stay in your lane. So you should stay in your cultural lane. You should stay in your visual lane. You should stay in your gender lane. You should stay in your sexuality lane. Mm. You should stay ethnicity lane, <laughs> you know, all of mm. these lanes that we're expected to stay in. And actually my, my honest feeling is that that is incredibly stifling and restrictive 
for highly creative people. Yes, <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, because then it, then it feels very bizarre or it's weird when you're told that you cannot um, really explore outside of what you were brought up with because you are meant to be the voice of your culture. And then what if you don't want that for yourself? Yeah, and I think for so many artists, there's a, there's a pressure to produce cultural work when that's not their interest at all. Hmm. You know, by the way, I, I, I think that there is much more pressure to produce cultural work if you're a non-white artist, right? Because as a white artist, I, I, I am never put under pressure to create work that's representative of my culture. But I have had so many clients who are black or considered to be indigenous or whatever. And it's one of the first things that people want to see is some work that represents their culture in some way, even if that's not their field of interest in the slightest. So for example, you might have a- That's so true. A, a black artist living in London yeah. who wants to create abstract painting, but what people want to see from her is her struggle as a black woman represented in figurative, literal terms on the canvas. And if she's not presenting her struggle as a black woman, then people are like, oh, well, what is this work? Right. So that's very interesting to me because as a white woman, nobody's coming to me and saying, um, show us your cultural struggle so why are we putting that kind of pressure on people who are not, not white? It's, it just seems pretty absurd to me. So how, how do you break out of that? Because I feel like there are so many considerations, right? Because if you are a creative person, you want to be living of your creative work, ideally. Um, and then there's also this issue of believing that as a creative, you don't really deserve to get paid <laughs> um so if you are well i'm latin american but if, if you're a black woman in the uk and you want to do let's say french impressionism or mm -hmm. something like that then how do you do your work believing and feeling deep inside of you that what you're doing is authentic to you and not feeling you know, mm. like you need to shape shift and really just be be there for the spaces that will maybe reject your work because you're just not showing yourself as a quote unquote ethnic woman. Mm. Do you know what? That's outside of my experience directly because it hasn't happened to me, but it's within the experience of quite a few of my clients. Yeah. And for me, it, it really comes down to self-trust. Okay. Really, really comes down to self-trust. And it's, it's asking ourselves again and again, am I willing to trust myself even if the risk of trusting myself is loss of some kind? Mm. Because there's an upside and a downside to everything. And if you choose to stay in self-trust, 
there are going to be periods of time where nobody gets our work and there are going to be periods of time where nobody wants it. That's, that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's been the dichotomy of the artist for, for forever, you know, but it's about being in love with the process of what you're creating to such a degree that you'll do it anyway, even if it's not getting praise, even if it's not getting validation, even if you're not receiving exactly what you desire to receive. And what, what I find super interesting about that is it's the people who have the willingness to ride through those, those rough patches when nobody gets it, who end up holding this immense personal and creative power eventually that we often recognize as being um, authentic. So to be authentic, you almost have to be prepared to have your heart broken and be told that you're not authentic. Wow. That's, that's so hard. <laughs> It yeah. is hard. I'm not saying all of this, all of this, there's so many artists I know who are like, I don't want to deal with all of that. I just want to make my art. And ultimately, I think being an artist is an enormous quest in self-trust self-discipline and showing up. People think that artists are messy and undisciplined and scatty and can't organize themselves as all of these stereotypes that are negative around that. However, I think the opposite is true because it takes so much self-discipline mm. to keep showing up for something that gives you no guarantee whatsoever of anything. It, there's no guarantee it's gonna work. There's no guarantee anyone's going to like it. There's no guarantee that people will understand it. If you can become okay with being misunderstood, and if you can become okay with not being celebrated and not winning all the time, I think that's when you can be a really authentic artist. And it's taken me a long time, you know, I have clients now who say stuff like, well, I've been trying to do this for six months and it's not working yet. I'm like, you know, it really took me 20 years to understand who I even was as an artist. Hmm. Yeah, so basically it takes, it takes a lot of trial and error to mm -hmm. understand what it is that you like to do. But then let's say that you do the trial and error and something sticks right and you're okay there's a wave here i'm gonna ride it let's see what happens but then mid-wave you're like this is wrong this doesn't feel right then it's really hard to pivot mm. oh i'm so glad you brought this up okay i love this so part of being an authentic artist is allowing yourself permission to pivot and change. 
And I think if we get to the point where we are thinking, instead of thinking about what we're doing in the art, art, we're actually thinking about what people, how people might receive it or you know, you might be a performing artist and you're on stage and you start thinking about whether or not you put your jeans in the washing machine. That's probably the time to ask yourself, like, is is my heart and soul still in this? And maybe, maybe the answer is no. And so I have quite a, I guess, a spiritual relationship with that part of myself, with that guiding voice. And I did ask myself in the in the middle of last year when I was working really hard to build another business alongside my art, is this business a distraction? And the answer from my soul came back very clearly, yes, it's a distraction. I've subsequently asked myself the same question about different parts of my creative practice. Is this a distraction? Does this feel like I'm just doing this for the validation or, you know, any, any reason that's slightly misaligned with what I'm trying to do? And the answer often comes back, yes, and then it's time to drop it. And so whilst I'm really saying like, as an artist, it feels like we're walking a very thin line because what I'm saying is, we do not need to suffer in a sort of um, boutique suffering kind of way, like, oh, my traumas and all of that, in order to be an authentic artist. And I'm simultaneously saying that we also need to get okay with being uncomfortable because our discomfort is somewhat essential to us growing into the next evolution of ourselves. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And um, I remember when I was an intern at this newspaper here in mm. London, um, the the editor I was working with was talking about a photographer who this, this blends the line of arts, creativity and photojournalism. But this photographer basically just without really knowing the language, without having previous training in first aid or um, dangerous spaces, he just went to a war zone. So when I hear you say, um, you need to be okay with the discomfort, it's not necessarily jumping and going and putting your life in the line for the sake of creating, right? Like there are so many different ways to push yourself creatively without actually being reckless. Oh yeah, I'm not encouraging anyone to kind of like risk their life <laughs> necessarily for their art. But here's the thing, just being an artist, calling yourself an artist, um, making an offer to produce your art in exchange for money, for example, for some people, that's already a wild discomfort. Yeah that already puts them in an uncomfortable position. So there's this idea that transformation is preceded by discomfort. And I often use the metaphor in my work of the animals that transform, such as the lobster. So the lobster sheds its shell, it molts when it becomes super uncomfortable. 
And without that discomfort, it doesn't know that it needs to shed. There's this incredible rabbi whose name I've forgotten, who I, I watched his YouTube video and he was talking about this, how if the lobster could do what human beings do, which is basically just, you know, take a take an aspirin for that, it would never grow bigger because it would just, it wouldn't know that it needed to molt and, and shed its skin. And so when we're feeling discomfort about something like pivoting in our work or changing direction in our work, you know, we might have been doing something for years where we're essentially replicating what we know is already popular. This is something that comes up for artists all the time. It's like, oh, you did that project or you did that exhibition or you did that show or you did that album. Everybody loved that. Can you just do that again, but a little bit different? This can become mm. a slow drip death yeah. for creativity. It's like some kind of torture for many, many artists. And I certainly went through that in my, um, in my film career, particularly when I was creating animated short films and TV commercials and music videos. It was like, we really liked what you did last time. Can you do that again? But just like change the colors a bit. <laughs> you know? and, and I think so many artists feel that. And it takes an incredible amount of courage to pivot out of that and say, you know what, I'm going to do something completely different or I'm going to evolve the work in this way that nobody's expecting. And you don't have any guarantees that it will be received well. And that's exactly what you need to do. So for me, that thing that makes you feel super uncomfortable where you want to do a new kind of work that people might hate or just not care about, is often the thing that needs to happen. And it feels so vulnerable. Like, <laughs> so, so yeah. vulnerable. In the last few days, because um, I'm pivoting in my own work, um, I, I've been really just asking myself what kind of things I want to pivot into. And something that I always go back to is singing and creating music and this is one of my hidden loves that i don't think anyone in my life actually knows how much i love to sing and it's an identity that i've never embodied mm -hmm. <laughs> and i i used to do it um three years ago before the pandemic and the other day when i was thinking about this my legs started tingling in mm. a way that I haven't felt in forever. And I was mm. a part of me said, okay, this is what you need to do. And you're also terrified because you will be starting from zero. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, this is really important. So do we need to suffer for our art in the sense of like dredging up our old traumas and all of that stuff? No. Do we need to feel uncomfortable for our art by stepping into the void where it feels like you're just jumping into nothing yes <laughs> and that's why i said at the beginning we have a choice right we can choose but we can also choose to frame that feeling of stepping into the void as suffering or we can choose to frame it as part of the process and what absolutely needs to happen in service of our creative expression. 
Yeah, which is which is difficult, especially if you've had things that have worked really well before. Like it takes so much self-convincing unless unless you're really good at pivoting and it doesn't take that much to you know mm, mm, yeah decide. <laughs> yeah i have a, a a beautiful friend somebody i love so much who is a musician a singer-songwriter called emiliana torini and she tells a story about how when she was touring with her old music there was a moment where she was on stage and she just thought oh I wonder if my husband has put that jumper in the washing machine like I hope he's washed it on a cold wash or something and it was like that moment where she just thought maybe I'm not feeling this wow so it became so normal so... and easy right and easy right no longer no longer simulating no longer it's not when it's not challenging. So I think like, does the artist need to suffer? Not necessarily. Does the artist need to be challenged? Probably yes. Mm. Yeah. And, and sometimes what we need to do, the scariest thing that we need to do as artists is risk irrelevance. By disappearing for a while, by not producing in the productive way that we've, we've been taught is acceptable and good, but sometimes we need to retreat and go quiet and go silent mm. and risk being irrelevant. And I think that that's very difficult. Yeah. Even you saying it right now feels scary to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's worth the risk in 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 terms of like your creative growth? I think I've reached the point where it's inevitable for me to have to accept it. Because mm. um the previous things I no longer desire at all. And to say that is really difficult especially when you're considered to be maybe a unique talent or prolific or having a perspective that could do good that could be really good for others so then it feels slightly selfish to say you know what <laughs> i need to step out of this I feel like stepping stepping out of it in the sense of pausing or retreating for a while or stepping back to look, it's not necessarily the same thing as quitting. It's not an ending. I think very often we can get very bored with the medium and then we can think that the problem is the medium. And actually, sometimes the problem is the medium, but often the problem is not the medium. The problem is the message or lack of message. The problem is 
feeling that the work is true or not true. Mm. And, and it's easy for us to blame the medium mm. and be like, the whole reason that this is a mess is because I don't love oil paint anymore. So I'm going to become a photographer. Becoming a photographer is never going to make me a whole person. Becoming a photographer would never help me to get away from myself. <laughs> so I've got to get okay with my own discomfort and I've got to get okay with myself. So I, I feel like instead of us feeling like we need to make a big deal out of pivoting, and I think as artists, we are we are drama queens, we make a big deal about pivots. Like, I'm pivoting. It's like we're like... It's like we're turning... <laughs> warship like this battleship is turning and we're sending drones out in front to check if everything's okay and we're just like i am pivoting it's a massive deal instead of doing that if we could just hold it more loosely in our hand and be like you know what i have all these different tools i have all these different interests and skills I'm going to allow myself to explore a different way of using it, or I'm going to allow myself to add another string to my bow, another skill. I'm going to allow myself to play. Mm. I think that might be a great way to approach it because what we tend to do is we're like, right, I don't want to do all oil painting anymore. So I'm going to burn down the fucking studio. You know, that's, that's how it feels in our, in our heart, right? And and often it's not really necessary. It's like, just step away. <laughs> don't <laughs> Do burn anything. <laughs> Do something else for a little while. You don't have to burn your whole life down just because you're sick of painting in oils. Um, but I also love us for being these melodramatic. So it's more a case of just really giving yourself the space to be a multi-dimensional person instead of yes. instead of a, a machine. Yes, thank you for saying that. It really is about allowing yourself to be a multi-dimensional, multi-passionate person who's allowed to have different interests. And you know, if that means putting down your camera for four years so that you can sing, then it is what it is. And there will be people who will treat it as a tragedy. You may even treat it as a tragedy yourself. But ultimately, these are all tools and these are all things that we get to play with. I think we make it mean a lot, but ultimately there's nothing stopping us from having both and being both and doing both, or maybe putting down one tool for a while and then returning to it later. And we may fall in love with the tool by putting it down for a bit. That's true. That's true. Like you might find other ways of looking at it and working with it. Yeah. 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 I, th I think it's, I think it's a shame to assume that we know everything that the future holds because hmm. we don't. And so when, when there's a calling to explore something creatively, I feel like it's a great thing to explore that creatively, but simultaneously to understand that we don't need to burn down the rest of our life or the rest of our creative practice in order to make that happen. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please follow along for part two and hope to see you soon. Bye. Hi guys, it's Daniela. So here is part two of the creativity process episode with Ali Mapletoft. I'm really hoping you're enjoying this conversation. It's filled with so much wisdom from her own experience. And I really hope this will help shift anyone's perspectives um, on what it is to be creative. And if you're stuck in your own creative practice, I hope this helps and I hope it gives a lot more permission for you to grow outside of your cocoon and your base of comfort. And with that said, let's dive in. I want to ask you, would you like to talk about the practicality of being creative? Like when it comes to like you're pivoting, right? And you're allowing yourself to be a full person. You're like, yes, I got this. <laughs> um, but how about the, the, what I think is still in me and in other people, a limiting belief that when you're creative, you're not really allowed to maybe live a luxurious life or be safe or have a stable life, you know, or, or financial freedom. Because um, mm -hmm. I've, I've seen this a lot in different people in many different ways. And it's almost like if, if you do say, yes, I want to live a free life as an artist, then you just may need to be doing either, like you need to be working like two different jobs or three different jobs, or you need to be doing something more practical. This is another aspect of suffering as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think what you're talking about is the struggling artist archetype, the idea that in order to be an authentic artist, you cannot have money or pleasure or luxury or joy in any way, shape or form in your life. You must sit in that bare attic room, eating dry bread and water and being sad. That's, that's the kind of la bohème sort of classic 19th century stereotype of the artist, right? It's like, be, be, be poor and sad and, and then people will know what to expect from you. What do you mean by that? I mean, it's a stereotype. The idea that we have to be poor and not enjoy money, pleasure, luxury, fun, that we shouldn't even ask for money for our work. Mm. That's a construct. It's a, it's a made up story. Okay. Does it feel made up to you or does it feel super real? Sometimes. So when you said the, just right now, you saying the, like the image of the artist in the attic, a part of me was like, oh my God, that's so tragic. <laughs> It's supposed to be tragic. It's supposed to be tragic. It felt so real. So how is it a construct? 
<laughs> I think, look, it's it's a really it's a really compelling idea that that the poor artist lives and dies for their art. And there's um there's a story that was written, I guess, in the 1800s um, by a guy called Henri Merger or something like that. And it was the story of like, four struggling, starving artists. And it later became the, the, the musical play La Boheme. And it's just a really ingrained social, historical, theatrical idea that has existed for quite a long time. You know, but before these stories, artists were tradespeople like everybody. So the romanticization of the kind of dramatic, sad, poetic, crying, struggling artist is it's like a stereotype that that rose up through literature and and theater and it was very much loved and taken on board particularly by the aristocratic elite classes they loved the idea of like you know giving money to and supporting this poor artist and you know, oftentimes they used to almost like keep artists as pets, like have them in their great country homes and like give them a little cottage at the bottom of the woods and pay them to paint scenes, you know, like like treat artists like pets, right? I'm, sim I'm oversimplifying this, right? I am oversimplifying this, I'll admit it. But there was this idea that it was somehow romantic. It's like a 19th century romanticism of the struggling artist. And that person is not mentally fully okay, you know, in these stories. That's true. So if we, if we think yeah. about all of the artists that have been really mythologized and so many stories told about them, historically, we've selectively picked out the ones who cut off their ears or got impaled on, on poles in accidents or had awful things happen to them and we've 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 picked those ones out as the ones to remember and tell stories about because there's somewhat of an appeal around that suffering and that struggling mm -hmm. and if you think of all the millions of artists who've ever existed in the history of the world getting on with their thing some of them probably very happy some of them earning money some of them doing their thing we've picked out the suffering romantic tragic ones as like the best ones like the that we're still, talking about. we're still talking about them now after like 100 years or you know 200 years mm. so i guess what i'm saying is is that it's a really popular story and it's a really popular story that so many people believe to the extent that parents teach it to their children don't become an artist because that's not a stable life. That's a life of struggle and mental dysregulation and emotional dysregulation and sacrifice and pain. So we grow up with this idea that that's a, that's a truth. Not that it's a stereotype, but that's a truth. We get teachers and tutors and even art tutors teaching us the same thing. 
oh, follow your dreams, go for it, but you'll never make any money. Yeah. I know so many people who've been told that directly by their art teachers and tutors. What we believe is what we become. Yeah, or or if you're creative, then you're probably vapid and have nothing inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, as much as people are having the experience of the struggling artist, I'm not saying people are not having that experience. People are definitely having that experience. And we need to look at the multiple layers of that onion skin of why are people having that experience? Because they believe they deserve that experience, because it's what they expect to experience, because they've been told over and over again that that should be the limit of their expectations, because they've been told over and over again that they should be grateful for the opportunity to create the work that they create, that they have this chance that they should have more humility and be more grateful for that and accept things like not being paid properly and accept things like not being treated well and accept things like having multiple other jobs to make ends meet. So if, if we all comply with this story, then it becomes a reality. Right. So it's basically the give a lot of yourself, create, create, create and expect nothing in return. Mm -hmm. Is that mirrored in your experience? I've been told that many times. Mm. Like many mm. times. Mm. How, how does it feel, do you think, as an artist, like from your perspective, to release that story and be like, okay, I'm going to create this work and I'm going to, I'm going to put, for example, with money, I'm going to put a price on it that feels fair and good for me. And I'm going to ask for this much money. How, how does that feel? Scary. I think the first thought is, I wonder who will see the value in this to want to pay what mm. I think my work is worth. Mm. So a lot of doubts, definitely. Mm. Yeah, and you know, the thing about that is we get to unshackle our self-worth from the worth of the work as well. So even if I sell a painting for like a million dollars, that doesn't make me better. And if I sell it for 10 pounds, that doesn't make me irrelevant or worse or wrong i think we, we've connected our self-worth with our net worth in a way that is unhealthy yeah yeah that's true and would that come from the idea that when you're making something you're making it from deep within you so it's an extension of who you are yeah, I think partly it's that. I think partly it's that. I think there's all sorts of societal things as well, not just for artists, but for everybody around the link between self-worth and net worth, mm. for sure. And I think it can go both ways. I think people can feel deeply ashamed around money for not having enough. 
And I know that people can feel deeply ashamed around money for having too much or more than they think that they are worthy of. So it goes both ways. And both of those are symptomatic of the same problem, which is making a link between your self-worth and your network. So there isn't that, that that's that's a, an illusion. Mm-hmm. Having more money that will never make you a better person. Having less money will never make you horrible. Money can be an amplifier. It can magnify what's already there, but it doesn't make you who you are or what you are. Mm-hmm. So I think for me what I would love artists to feel inspired to do would be to price their work in a way that feels exciting. To actually price your work in a way that feels like I would be really excited to receive that money. That's a really nice, that's a not nice. is not the right word. That's a really different way of saying that, like how to price your work. Yeah. And honestly, that's how I price things. It's like, how much would I be excited to receive? I've never heard that before. Oh, Sum is telling me that we have 10 minutes left. <laughs> That's okay. I love this conversation and I know that I could talk about this for hours and I'm so happy to like have as many of these conversations <laughs> as we need to have because I think there are so many angles and so many, it's almost like a tree and there are branches going off in every direction with this topic. Mm. What I'm super interested in, Daniela, is when people in your circles have listened to this, it's like, which branch of the tree are they drawn down? You know, is it the branch of like money and what what it means to be an artist asking for money? Is it the branch of pivoting and what that means when you pivot? And do you have to burn down your whole life in order to pivot? Or is it something about um, artists and struggle and suffering? Because we've covered so many things. And I think like for anybody who's listening to this, I would really be super interested to hear your perspective and your response to this and like which avenues you felt called to go down further because i'm so up for having more conversations about this for sure yeah and and this whole all of this is so interconnected to authenticity like who you are as a person who you are creatively and the kind of things that you want to be putting out in the world like how you want to exist Mm. and there's just no no formula right yeah, there's no blueprint. There's no codes. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and it, this is funny because in my work as a mentor and a coach, there's this pressure in that world to have like the framework with the blueprints and the, you know, the the codes that you can give people. This is all very much to do with how things like coaching and mentoring are marketed. It's got very little to do with how they're actually delivered a lot more to do with how they're marketed and the primary promises that are made to people about the transformation they can receive and everything. But here's the news flash. <laughs> there's no blueprint. There's no codes. This takes a, an immense amount of um, self-inquiry and looking back at yourself all the time and asking yourself, does this feel, does this work feel true for me right now? 
Am I willing to explore and learn new things? Am I willing to keep asking myself, um, what am I, what am I willing to risk? You know, there is, there is risk involved in being an artist. You will risk things. You will risk things like certainty and you will risk sometimes even things like friendships and you will risk opportunities in order to create your work. But those risks are not really sacrifices if you are deeply in love with the process, even if that process is an uncertain one. Mm. If you can yeah. fall in love with that winding road, you're going to be okay. Oh, that's such a beautiful way to end this conversation. <laughs> so, Ali, Thank you. You know, I really enjoy this conversation. <laughs> I could talk about this for the whole entire day. And, you know, that's, yeah, that's really it. That's what I want to leave you with. It's like fall in love with walking down that winding road. Thank you so much. Ali, uh, for anyone that would want to reach you, what's the best way to contact you? Okay, so you can find me on Instagram. I'm Ali Mapletoft. And I'm the only one on there. I don't think there's any other Ali Mapletoft on Instagram, as far as I know. <laughs> um, if you're interested in my creative direction work, you can find it there. If you're interested in the work that I do as a coach, working with artists and luminaries who are in their mastery then you can find me there and as much as i really absolutely love the journey of the beginner the people that i'm super super excited and activated by working with are definitely people who've already reached a level of mastery in their work doesn't mean they have to do the same work forever but they've reached a level where They know who they are. And, and I include you in that, Danielle. When I see your work, I'm like, yeah, she's she's reached a level of mastery in her work. And people like you never think that they have. They always think that they're way miles off, but, but you have. <laughs> oh, that's reassuring. <laughs> oh, this, this was amazing. And it, it really feels like we just covered the surface. <laughs> No, it always yeah. feels like that. That makes a good podcast. Like, I want to hear from from your audience and tell us what do you want to hear more of. That would be really interesting to me. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We should have like a follow up in like a year or something like that. Oh, and you're gonna be writing a book, right? Yes, yes, I am. So at the moment, I'm writing a book about the cost of unexpressed creativity. So if you have a story about how unexpressed creativity has affected your life in some way, it could be your health, it could be your relationships, it could be your sense of self. I am so interested in hearing about that. And again, you can contact me through Instagram. Um, Ali Mapletoft Artist is the best place to find me. Really important topic. Yeah. I feel like it's going to help a lot of people. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was so much fun. Me too. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening. Please send any comments, reach out to me, reach out to Ali. We are so happy to be here for you and hope to see you soon. Bye.